0: When I uh, preach, I usually run five to ten of these little pages of notes. Um, Last week, I finished up at two minutes after 12. Not one person commented on that, so today I have 20 pages of notes. (laughs) Don't give me an attaboy. You'll pay. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) Just kidding. I'm just kidding. Would you please turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We are looking at verses 5 through 11. Today we will focus on verse 7. We will pray and then we will read the word of the Lord and ask Him to instruct us on the awesome wonder of this text. Father... Set our hearts to you now. That, uh, as we just sang, open our eyes that we may see Jesus. May we look full into his face. Father, please open our hearts. Uh, Cleanse us of any unforgiveness that we have. And, Father, uh, any of those that we would need to forgive, let it be the passion of our soul. And Father, as we looked last week to see the heart of our saving God, that it is a heart of love and of forgiveness. And Father, it eagerly awaits to receive those who love and forgive and turn from their iniquity. Father, may we who are called by your name this day understand that we, in the essence of our ministries, each of us possessed the ministry of reconciliation. Help us, Lord, help us to be faithful ministers to your glory and praise. Amen. Chapter two, Second Corinthians five through 11. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much. To all of you sufficient for such a one is this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excess of sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him for to this end. Also, I wrote so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also, for indeed what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan. For he, we are not ignorant of his schemes. Um, this text is basically an illustration of Christ's likeness. I don't, however you want to cut it, you know, I, I hear people say, well, walk as Christ, we're in the fruit of the Spirit, do this, that, and the other. But if you're really honest with yourself, Christ's likeness was basically noted for one thing and one thing only, forgiveness. I mean, you know, it was weird that I was talked about that church that does not have a mechanism for restoration. And I thought, how in the world do you call yourself a church? I mean, if there's any mechanism for restoration, it should exist in the body of Christ. <laughs> I didn't think you needed to be a theologian to grab a hold of that, but evidently, um, and, and, and when I look at this, and we last week we looked at the heart of God, and, and the heart of God is love, but in that love is forgiveness, alright, and, and one of the things that I do see in the, that is a, a problem in the body of Christ today is a lack of forgiveness, Uh, It's. I shared with you last week that in in the ministry there is a binding and a loosening, and those people who have a, a firm grasp on the word of God are oh so exceptional at binding. But for whatever reason, we have missed the loosening. Because the, the Hebrew mindset was that when a person is in unrepentant sin, then they are bound by their sin. And whatever you bind on earth, it is bound in heaven. All right? But it also says, whatever you loosen on earth is loosened in, in heaven. And if you really think about it, Jesus came here for what reason? To loosen us. Okay? And yet we want to go and bind them. And I, that's, that's amazing to me. Uh, and, and, and when the person has come to the place that their sin overwhelms them and they do this, they confess that it is sin. Alright. Why do we say that the person has to come and ask my forgiveness? What if they say, you know what? What I did was wrong and I've changed direction. Well, they didn't ask for my forgiveness. So they're non-repentant? Are you telling me that they have to personally look you in the face and ask for your personal forgiveness before you'll forgive them? Let me ask you a question. Have you looked in Jesus' face and asked for His forgiveness? Has He forgiven you? When I confess that it is sin and I change my direction, it is forgiven. And all of a sudden, your standard or my standard is greater and I've watched the church put limits on grace. And I have to ask a silly question. What was Christ's limit on his grace for each of us? I can tell you in my life, I haven't reached him yet because I need it almost moment by moment. So I don't know what its limit is. All right. I pray that I never get to the end of it. (laughs) So, you know, I look at the apostle Paul in this text. Paul had been falsely assaulted. His character, his integrity, his virtue, they were even assaulting his, his spiritual office. They were assaulting his calling. He's not called. His teaching was in question. And all of it had been assaulted. By, and it starts by false teachers. But one of the things that I have learned about false teachers, there's a bunch of them, is one thing. The second thing is, it is very easy for them to get hearers. And some of the hearers are legitimate children of God, but they are basing something on an emotion and they are swayed by that emotion and they follow what they've been taught that isn't true. I cannot even begin to tell you how many people that I know who have a biblical understanding and follow false teachers. It is very disturbing. Very disturbing. Because one of the things that I know about false teachers, false apostles, is that they seem to have no problem finding willing ears okay and it had happened among the Corinthians. they were raising a rebellion against the apostle Paul. okay in fact, when Paul had made a trip to Corinth, a member um, The object, the man of this text in 5 through 11, confronted Paul to his face. And he confronted it with a boldness and a confidence. He did it publicly. He did it shamelessly. He shamelessly, he publicly discredited this beloved apostle. In the gathering of the congregation. This one who spoke for Christ. And Paul understood that this man needed to be dealt with. Okay, the authority of the apostle Paul was crucial to the early church. Truthfully, is the authority of the apostle Paul is crucial to the church today? Okay, it is. It is. I could not believe the number of articles I'm teaching on the role of women in the worship service, uh, in the church, the congregation in First uh, Timothy chapter two, verse nine and following through fifteen. And um, I cannot believe the number of people who believe that that text was a cultural text. It's amazing to me. All right. And coming out of some pretty impressive people. But they believe it is cultural and it was a bias on the Apostle Paul. You know what you just said? Paul can't be trusted. All right. Now, dude, we're going to do that. We can thin this Bible out. I mean, I can, we can, we can get it back to the one that Eve couldn't memorize. You know? And all of a sudden you start saying, well, wait a minute. And, you know, but if you want to cause a controversy, think about it. Teach on what the role of a woman is in the church today. Duck. But teach it. Now, I've done it, but I always wear Kevlar. I'm not stupid. And then I usually sell my car, my truck, and buy something that nobody knows I drive. <laughs> That's not me. See, see, we know we know how to do this. You know, I, I I understand this. This is I I'm not new in this job. Even today, okay. As I look at it in the church in Corinth, I understand. You know, the canon of the New Testament is not complete, and if people lost confidence in the apostle who spoke the word of God by revelation then we would have no source for truth. Okay? And if you think about it, I shared this last Wednesday night, what is the church's primary purpose in existence? It is the pillar and the foundation of truth. So they attacked the integrity and the credibility of Paul. And to say that this attack was crucial to be dealt with would be a lack of an understatement. Uh, it's, It's beyond importance. See, I see it today in the similar attacks on the integrity of Scripture. Well, that was a man's writing. Or it was the interpreters have twisted it. It has been added to or taken away from. That's amazing to me. That is amazing to me. You're telling me that God who spoke existence into being Can't protect his word. I've never had any problem with it. Uh, And then you know, and I I remember seeing uh, the 1553 um, hand translated Bible. It'd be 1553. It in the front of it. It was John Knox presenting it to a guy named Prince James. It had been translated by hand by a guy named John Calvin. And I just opened it up. See, they let me touch anything every once in a while. I opened it up. I landed at Philippians chapter 2. I opened up my new King James, Philippians chapter 2, and read the two texts, and they're verbatim. Has anybody here heard the Dead Sea Scrolls? They have them on display in Jerusalem in a place called the Book. Interesting concept. The bulk of what they have together is the Book of Isaiah. Right Now, let's be realistic Isaiah is sort of a, a thick book. Okay. But they've got the Book of Isaiah, right? Do you know that it is less than 1% different than our translation? Is that just lucky? No. But we attack the integrity of Scripture. And they undermine the Apostle Paul. They're doing it today. They do it today. They undermine his life. They undermine his ministry. What he taught. And they use it to distort divine truth. So when someone... Stands up in the congregation and attacks Paul's integrity in the middle of the congregation publicly. Do you understand that's not a small issue? Today, I could have somebody stand up and attack my integrity and could attack, you know, my person, my ministry, my calling. Um, The problem is you still have to deal with Scripture. You may not like me, but the only thing I'm giving you is Scripture. In the days of the Corinthian writings, um, they had to deal with the man. Truth of the matter is, if someone were to stand up and attack the leadership of this church, uh, I would deal with them and send them outside of the church. I would do it immediately. And here's the reason. You do not take an accusation against an elder without two or more witnesses. Well, what if the Bible says you do not bring an accusation against an elder without two or more witnesses? I I don't understand the problem with that. Paul had written. And told these people, possibly in that severe letter, that this is not a small issue. Uh, If he did go back to the church in between 1st and 2nd Corinthians and the severe letter, um, I know that before he left, he would have told the believers in the Corinthian church to deal with this man. They needed to confront this man. They needed to call this man to repentance. See, one of the things that I I think is missing that when we want to point out somebody else's sin and tell them that what they're doing is a sin... We never do it with the mindset of restoration. We're doing it because we think that we're smarter than you are. Or I've read my Bible or I've memorized my Bible or I've done this or I've done that. I've already told the people and they know it and I still stand by it. That if you're willing to point out a person's sin, then you had better be willing to walk side by side with them until it is dealt with. If not, you will have to deal with me. And I'm a pleasant person. Well, I am. You guys are laughing like that's a joke. This was serious, and it was for the sake of the church. Well, what is amazing is they did. Now, we don't know if they did it between... We know it was between First and Second Corinthians, but we don't know if it was done at the time of Paul personally saying, you have to do this, or the severe letter. Alright. But we do know that by the time they got through the severe letter and Titus came back with a report that the man had repented. He had asked for forgiveness. He had sought forgiveness. And the man had been confronted. Okay. He had been disciplined. He had repented. And that's why Paul writes five through 11. Okay. Now that we have done this formal Public confrontation, it's time to forgive. The man's repentance is enough. Alright? He's basing this on the information he receives from Titus. Ti- Paul urges the discipline to stop and restore the person, this man, fully. Back to the congregation, back to the fellowship, back to the family. And that's what we're looking at here is seven blessings of forgiveness. You know, it's, it's, it's like if I'm ever searching for a good reason to forgive. Has anybody ever here sought a reason to forgive? Yeah, I didn't think so. Anyway. Why? First, Paul didn't take it personally. It deflects our s- our pride—it deflects our egos. A lot of times that you'll see a person who is nonforgiving. You know why? Their ego's in a way. You've wounded me. This was against me. You know, and and and. When I read this text, I think about the Apostle Paul being attacked publicly on his character and his integrity and how the, you know, remember in first Corinthians, I am of Paul. That group would want to pound this man into submission. Because they offended our, our buddy, Paul. See, ego's not, if it, ego cannot be involved in forgiveness, All right? You can't have self pity. See, he says there in verse five, he caused sorrow. I mean there's no doubt that he caused sorrow. When you have to confront sin publicly in the body of Christ, you can't tell me it ain't causing sorrow. I mean, now you've got some people in the churches today who are clueless. You know, they they go to church occasionally, and if it's not too hot or not too cold, it ain't raining, it ain't snowing, or it's not too sunny, I'll be there. Okay? And they don't really pay attention to what's going on in the body of Christ. And so if something like discipline shows up, they're like, oh, what was that all about? And they just move right on through their own little fog. But this was brought publicly. And Paul says, yes, there was sorrow here. It caused schisms in the body of Christ. But the fact is, it's not a personal thing. It's not a personal thing. That's Paul. Paul. Paul was a humble man, but if you think about it, follow me as I am a follower of Christ. Why? Because Christ was a humble man. See, he makes a statement here in verse 5, it's kind of, in order not to say too much, that's a fascinating statement when you think about it in light of what probably happened no need to overstate the offense. Have you ever noticed that? I know that we're none of us in this room are guilty of this. We never overstate the offense too often. We never speak of it on an ongoing basis paul says i i no need to add to the sorrow of this um, w- w- Paul understands that we don't need to make more out of it than we should. Because if you start making more out of it than you should, you know what happens? Every time your ego gets involved. Forgive the man. Because it deflects your pride second thing we looked at, it shows mercy. Verse 6. Verse 6. Sufficient for such one is this punishment. Did you ever think about that? Sufficient is this punishment. Well, you just don't understand. No. It had been done by the majority. It had been done publicly. It was a public, formal, official chastening by the church. Which means that in the context, one confronted him. In the context, then two or three more confronted him, and then the church dealt with it. Okay? Paul is telling this church in Corinth, you've done the binding work. You've bound this person to their sin. You've proved the point that this person is chained up in their own sin. It's been proven. And the reason that we bind it to the person. Do you understand the reason? Is that they would repent. We need to show them that where they're at is not beneficial. See, that's enough. That punishment is enough. The man endured at the hands of the majority. Now he's repented. He said, you know what? What I did was wrong. And now I've changed my direction. Now Paul says, let's do the loosening work. Let's do the loosening work. Why? Let's set this bugger free from his sins. You who are spiritual see any brother in any sin. What? Bear the burden. Pick him up and carry them. But you know what? In every congregation, every facet of the history of the church, you will always have those who want their pound of flesh. I don't think that was stringent enough. You know, the discipline was too short for the severity of the crime. He needs more. What he did was horrible. You know, I am of Paul. I'm 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 just doing it to pre- protect my brother. See, what the apostle Paul is basically throwing us here is that the time issue is not a factor. He suffered enough. Repentance is in action. The, the repentance is the action of the confession. Now, give him what mercy. Now. We can sit and say, well, all right, I've reviewed. Well, let me show you something here because I just want you to keep this in mind. Chapter 2 of James, verse 13 says this. For judgment will be merciless to those who shows no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Judgment will not have mercy in it if you do not show mercy. Remember Matthew 18 the guy who couldn't pay the, the king's debt and he wrote it off, right? Remember the text we looked at a couple of weeks ago, right? And then he went and found somebody who him a handful of coins, throwed him in jail. And God, the, the Lord said what? I will send the tormentors after him and you will pay the full deserved penalty. See, chastening will come to the one who doesn't forgive. Okay, did you hear what I said? Chastening will come to the one who doesn't forgive. Well, wait a minute. They sinned against me. Yeah. But if you don't forgive, God's chastening will be upon you. Paul says it's enough. Once the man repents, that's enough. There's no more punishment. Now is the time for mercy. Okay, all of that is to bring everybody up to speed. Verse 7. Check it out. So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him, otherwise such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Okay, he's already said there was some sorrow there. Okay. This is basically the implication is that forgiveness, one of the blessings of forgiveness is that it restores joy. Okay? Paul says, On the contrary, on the contrary, apart from the sorrow, apart from the punishment, okay, forgive and comfort. See, it it removes overwhelming sorrow. See, when a person is bound in sin, at first they think they're okay. Tell me I'm wrong. Everybody jumps into sin because they think, well, this is going to be a blast. And all of a sudden they realize they have become chained, overpowered by it. It steals their joy. It steals their purpose. It steals their heart's passions. And here they got it. See, that's the amazing thing about the father of lies. He will tell you that this sin will bring you great joy. And tell you what, never, never, it will never, ever, ever bring you joy. And what you will end up is bound by it, bound by it. You can't, you can't deal with this text without dealing with a very dear friend of mine. King David, the 51st Psalm. I don't think anybody has ever read the 51st Psalm and can't say, I just can't identify with that. Every time I read Psalm 51, I just sort of, bummer. See, King David was confronted. he had had a man killed and committed adultery, With the man's wife. But the king confessed. He confessed. Verse 12. We won't read the whole thing. Restore to me what? The joy of my salvation. A person who is still in their sin. Takes absolutely no joy in their salvation. There's none. It's not there. Okay, Now I know that none of you have ever dealt with that When God points out your sin You immediately say yes Father it's a sin And they just turn from it But I have seen people in the past Who have been robbed of their joy And I know that it's their sin Because they're blaming everybody else for it (laughs) Ain't that what we do? Tell me I'm wrong It started a few years ago Eve said it was the snake's fault Adam says it was God's fault because he made her. That went over well. Okay? And we don't we do it? Look at us today. I mean, I mean, tell me one aspect of our society where it isn't somebody else's fault. Why does everybody who gets convict uh uh uh, uh, uh goes before a judge, the first words out of their mouth is not guilty. And then all of a sudden they go through some gyrations. They come back. And, yeah, I was guilty. Plea bargained it out. Why don't you just walk in first time? And say, yep, I did it. Oh, but I want to. Nah, Why? And those people who are in jail, how joyful are they? Right? Because they are bound by their Sins. You watch the saints of God and those who don't have no joy. Guess what? Handcuffed. Leg shackles. The whole nine yards. Why? Sin is their master. King David here says, hey, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And sustain me with what? A willing spirit. Paul told Timothy that, you know what, Timothy, if someone comes against you, you pray that God brings them to repentance. We don't have the ability to even get our own repentance. Look what he says down in verse 14, though. Deliver me from blood guilt. Guiltiness. That's that's a murderer. O God, the God of my salvation, then my tongue will, what? Joyfully sing to your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praises. Return to me the joy. Give me a psalm. Give me a song to sing. Open my lips. Give me back my joy. Restore my joy. The Apostle Paul is saying, look, you should forgive him and comfort him so that he is not overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. It's amazing. Don't you think that's amazing? Put joy back in his life. Pain is enough to endure where he's at. The pain has brought him to repentance and it is time now for the restoration of joy. Restore his Joy, this person that the church has confronted by the majority. Now we need to restore his joy. We should be eager to bring the joy. See, one of the things that I've noticed in the body of Christ is we are eager to bring the pain. We're not so eager to bring the joy. That is the heart of God, brothers and sisters. Let me take you a text, one of the, my favorite texts about the person of God, actually. Um, it's a quote of Isaiah, but I'm going to take it out of uh, uh, um, Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 12, verses 18 and following. Oops. This is Isaiah speaking of God, but he's speaking of God in the incarnation of Messiah. Uh, and this is what Matthew's given us um, comes out of Isaiah forty forty two. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Then look what it says in verse 20. This is where I want to focus. A battered reed. He will not break off. A smoldering wick. He will not put out. I'll stop right there. I just want you to think about that for a second. The shepherds. Used to. When they would go out and spend. Months at a time. Overseeing the. the, the, the uh, Flocks. Uh, it wasn't like they could tune in the radio or their satellite TV and get some entertainment. And what they would do is they would take these reeds, they would cut them off, and then they would put notches in them, and they would play music. I mean, they, they were on a very limited income, and, and it wasn't like they could carry a lot. And so uh, they would make these reeds. And what happens is they would play these melodies, all of these reeds as entertainment and as song, and as the saliva got through the reed, the reed would get limp and it would collapse and it would no longer be useful for playing music and they would do what? Pitch them. And what he says here is Messiah will not do that. The prophet is telling us Messiah will never throw away. Messiah will never discard the little flute that doesn't play that perfect tune. See, that's the heart of God, brothers and sisters. God wants to restore the melody back to that flute, to that song. That's the heart of God. See, the heart of God is because He is love, and that love overwhelms His forgiveness, shows nothing but mercy. See, and and then when you look at the one there, He says, the smoldering wick He will not put out. In in the the writing of the New Testament and the Old Testament, uh, is... is Lamps were a little bowl of oil. all right. And what you would do is take a a waxen string and you would drop it down in that. And then you light that string and it just burn off the oil. But what happens is that little wick gets crusty. And once it gets crusty and burnt, what they do is fish it out and throw it away. But God's heart says, I will cleanse that little wick. I will fan that little wick and I will bring light to that little wick again. God wants the joy of His people. That's what He's looking at. Look at some of the things that pastors do to their people. Bam, 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 bam. And the people walk out there going, oh my God. And you're like, yeah, boy, I feel great. Okay. You're going to share the gospel? Never. I don't want to put anybody I know through that again. Gospel of John. John tells us these things I have written unto you that your joy may be full. God's word comes to us and it comes to us that it might produce joy one of the tragedies in the body of Christ today is we believe that sin will bring us joy and we walk around bound up and when the preacher treats us truth we think hey he's just a preacher and he's just firing brimstone and he's trying to condemn me when the truth of the matter is I confront your sin for one reason one reason only to restore you to the joy of God God's word wants joyful people listen what is fruit of the spirit love Paul saying, "Look, man. The guy suffered. He's been kicked out of the church. He was publicly and the majority said, yes, you have, and it brought such grief upon his heart that he has repented of it. He has confessed of it. Now it is time for joy. Bring back his joy." Contrary to the, see, he says, to the contrary, instead of increasing the punishment, since there's repentance, there's grief, it's clear, then there's only one course of action a longing desire to offer loving forgiveness. Don't hold back comfort and forgiveness. The church cannot set false borders on grace. You can't set false limits on your mercy. Self-made walls on your forgiveness. The church cannot deny a repentant sinner no matter how serious the sin was. Do you understand that? Did you read 51 of Psalms? What had he done? Adultery and murder. And God returned to him what? And we believe that our standard now is greater? Well, wait, preacher. We want to be sure... That he'll never do it again. I'm going to be straightforward with you. You can never have that assurance. That's why in Matthew 18 it says we forgive how many times? Why? You can't have that assurance. Well, how can I ever trust them? And nowhere in the Bible does it say I have to trust you. Nor do you have to trust me. I trust the Lord with all my heart. I lean not on my own understanding. In all my ways I acknowledge him, and he makes my path straight. Failure to forgive becomes a sin for the person who fails to forgive. And you know what is you can always tell it. It steals their joy. <laughs> well, it does. You see him. You just don't understand. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. (laughs) I don't because you could be joyous and you don't want to be. So fine. I have to make light of this because it is a very painful topic. Failure to forgive. If you're holding a grudge today then do not turn to this text mark 11:25 whenever you stand praying forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father who is in heaven will also forgive your transgressions if you fail to forgive you are restricting god from forgiving you yay Matthew 18, 31. We've already looked at this. If you fail to forgive, it brings you under God's discipline. He will send the tormentors after you. (laughs) And I'll let you take your little Greek dictionary and figure out what that means because I can tell you this much. It isn't pleasant. If you fail to forgive, you will corrupt your worship before you can even worship. You've got... To forgive. When I think about forgiveness, I was going back to the Old Testament. I thought about Leviticus 13, 13 on how to treat a leper. When a leper, now I don't know what this disease is, but it was apparent. It was some type of a skin disease. And when a person was diagnosed with this disease, they were classified as Unclean. They were set aside from the city. They were set aside from the synagogue. They were set aside from temple worship. And they weren't allowed to be around other people. And any time they traveled, if they come near another person, they had to shout forth, unclean, unclean, unclean. Well, that sounds like public humiliation to me. (laughs) I don't know about you. Where's Bob? He's out there in the desert yelling unclean. But whatever this disease was, there was an ability to make it non-contagious. And when you went and presented yourself before the priest and it had a white texture on it, that means that nobody could get it and the priest then would pronounce you as clean. And you were allowed back in the city. You were allowed to be back with your family. You were allowed to be back in the temple and the synagogues and all the rest of the stuff. And you were one of the people. And then you were termed as... Clean. He is clean. He has confessed. He has changed his direction. Let him back into the family. Let him back into the community. And it is the only course of action that we have. To use Isaiah's term. He is white as snow. Forgive. Which means I don't ask for punishment no more. I have loosened. Don't stop there. Because it says comfort. paracoleto, Comfort. I love that. It's a term used to speak of the Holy Spirit. It's the paraclete. Like running shoes. This is paracleto. This is a shoe. <laughs> no. It literally means come alongside and strengthen. It's the Galatians chapter 6 text. Chapter 6 verse 1. Brethren, if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, do what? Restore such a one. That's paracoleto. Restore such a one. You do it in love. Why? Because love overwhelms me. You have changed your direction. Therefore, now I'm overwhelmed with the forgiveness that is my heart. And I am here to restore you, to bring you into the restoration, to come alongside, to build you up, to lift you up, to strengthen him. You help them. Now that they confessed that what they did was a sin and they have changed their directions, now you who are spiritual, help them walk in obedience. That is parakleto. It's good stuff, isn't it? Chapter 12 of Hebrews, verses 12 and 13. One of my favorites. This is dealing with God's chastening. Therefore strengthen the hands of the weak, and the knees of the feeble, make straight the path of your feet so that the limb that is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. See, you know, I hear people talk about I have a ministry, I have a music ministry, I have a whatever ministry. But you know what I don't ever hear anybody say? I have a ministry of restoration. And yet every single one of you have been called to a ministry of restoration. 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 Even those who have been chastened by the Lord will need nece- be necessary for you to be as a parakaleo, as a comforter to come alongside and to strengthen them so they can walk in obedience to walk with them. Now that there is repentance, bring them back. I remember reading uh, a Spurgeon quote, and he said, Should I fall, please turn me over to the barkeep's and the harlot. They will be gentler with me. Unquote. Isn't it true? Isn't it true? This man's sorrow over his punishment. This man's sorrow over his rejection. We don't want him to be overwhelmed. Restore him again. The word overwhelmed there is an amazing word in the original language. Uh, it literally means to be swallowed up Completely. Engulfed. It was used to speak of animals that would completely devour their prey. Okay. Um, It was used to speak of waves that would absolutely immerse somebody and they'd always be gone. They'd be drowned. Just overwhelmed. God's desire is not that someone be drowning in sorrow. God does not want someone to be overwhelmed in grief. God does not want someone to be overwhelmed in the grief of their sin. It's been confronted. Now, I want you to think about this because in in this context that we're looking at, this is a public thing that had been brought before the church. But what about you do when you find somebody in a sin and it's just you and them? Do you understand it is not your responsibility to drown that person in that sin? It is your responsibility to cover that sin and then to be the to encourage them to walk in obedience. But we have a tendency to say, well, I confronted them. Let's go get some witnesses. God wants them to come only to the point where they see it as a sin. And And are willing to confess and repent. You know what a milestone it is? When a person looks at you and says, You know what? You're right. It's a sin. As soon as they do that, our responsibility then is to help them to walk in obedience. Now, if they choose to be non-repentant on it, don't worry. That paraclete will deal with it. Listen... I have dealt with people in the past, and and all I can think of is, do you not understand that God does not get pleasure in despair? I've seen people who like to bring despair where they go. And and you're like, you have a great ministry. See, if I'm willing to take the person and see their sin, then they repent, and God wants them to immediately know what? Joy. Joy. The overwhelmingness of forgiveness. I remember begging Jesus Christ to save me. And that's all I knew. I I need to be saved. And immediately there was this peace and joy that surpassed my understanding. Because I was still in jail. I was hoping maybe the doors would fly open. And we could start singing Kumbaya or something. And the doors didn't open. But I had a joy and a peace to this day that still is astounding to me. God seeks our joy. I see people who preach Christ and, and are running around throwing these. You don't want to go to hell? or And, and they, they bring a God that's like a cosmic killjoy. I don't want you to have any fun. If you smile, you're going to hell. I, you know, oh, gee, me. You know, I had people come in. I like real old rock and roll. Okay. Now I'm talking Buddy Holly rock and roll. And I've had people say, well, you're listening to rock and roll. How can you do that? Well, you know what? <laughs> if that's going to condemn me, you should have seen the other things. <laughs> I, I don't understand that. It don't make sense. God is not running around nor does he want you to run around trying to destroy everyone's happiness. Nor should we run around thinking that we are going to will be the avenge, the avenging angel for God. Stay away from our own self-pity. We do not need to be adding pain to people's life. We do not need to add despair to people's life. And um, doing that is not a ministry that brings godly virtues. (laughs) Sorry. Okay. Listen, that is not true righteousness. That is not true righteousness. I I mean, I've had people get on me. say, well, you got a beard. How can you be a preacher? You know, (laughs) there's a whole long list of things on how can I be a preacher and a beard ain't on the list. I don't understand some of this stuff. I really don't. And I, and I watch it and it is all over the place. I watch people put walls around grace. I watch people put limits on mercy. Forgiveness seeks the person's joy. As God seeks that person's joy. As soon as possible. Please not hear me on this. As soon as it's possible to forgive, you must forgive and comfort. Then that sinner knows joy. Then you know the blessings of joy of forgiving. And that's a cool thing. And you know what? What you will always find is then the church knows the joy of unity. That's what the apostle Paul is getting to you and me here in Second Corinthians. When we forgive, as Christ has forgiven us, remember what he said, chapter 432 of Ephesians, as Christ has forgiven us, we deflect our pride. And I know that no one in here struggles with pride, but if you forgive, you won't have to struggle with it. You will show the mercy that was shown you on the cross, and you will restore the joy of their salvation as David cried out in Psalm 51. And the unity of the body will be something that the lost people will say, I want that. And it begins with each and every one of us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for my brother, Paul. Thank you for King David. And uh, wow, Lord. Uh, Father, we, he who says he's without sin calls you a liar. And yet, Father, we are to walk in a ministry of reconciliation and restoration. God, beginning with me, I'm so thankful that you have forgiven me, that your grace is unbounding, and that your mercy overwhelms me. Father, may I never step outside of that understanding. And Father, may we, who are called by your name, understand the magnitude of our forgiveness. And Father, may we rest full weight And you will do exceedingly abundantly beyond what we can think or imagine in Christ and Christ alone. Thank you for the body of Christ. I thank you for your holy word. I thank you for your spirit. And I thank you that you have given us a ministry of parakaleo. That we literally can comfort one another. in the deepest, darkest sins imaginable, we still can forgive and comfort. And I praise you. And I thank you. May we walk worthy of your calling in Christ and Christ alone. Amen.